Today's episode is brought to you by our amazing friends at Pygmonic. On their behalf, I hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and this is episode number 23 with Dr. Will Bolsewicz. Our microbiome, they're made up of bacteria, fungi, and viruses, and they live in harmony and balance like an ecosystem. It is conceptually the same as the Amazon rainforest or the Great Barrier Reef. If you were to zoom in with a microscope and look at the gut, what you would see is there is this single layer of cells called the epithelial layer. This single layer of cells is invisible to the naked eye and it acts like a fence. And on one side of the epithelial layer is your gut microbiome, 39 trillion strong. And on the other side is 70% of your immune system because 70% of your immune system lives in your gut. This single layer of cells may physically separate them, but they are talking to each other. They are in constant communication. And so the problem becomes that if you damage the gut, then you are disrupting the communication with the immune system and a damaged gut will manifest with a confused immune system. If you want a a healthy immune system, you need a healthy gut. Mm -hmm. And as I was researching the book, what I saw is that literally every single allergic and autoimmune issue, which are examples of a confused immune system, every single one where I was able to find a study, hey, what's happening in the gut? The answer was 100% of the time the same. Yeah. Damage to the gut, dysbiosis in 100% of the cases where they've studied what's happening in the gut when you have an allergic or an autoimmune issue. Gut health is tied to our ability to process and digest our nutrients to our immune system, our metabolism, our hormonal balance, our mood, even the expression of our genetics. To me, that is a precious resource that I want to protect. And because it's so important to me, it it basically makes this important for virtually everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're having a blessed day. Thank you so much for pressing play and tuning into the Medspiration Podcast, where our goal is to help you bridge the gap between medical science and your mind, body, and spirit. In today's episode, we're bringing you Dr. Will Bolsewicz. Dr. B is a board-certified and award-winning gastroenterologist. He's a New York Times bestselling author and a master of science in clinical investigation. I read his book, Fiber Fueled, in its entirety before this interview, and you'll hear us dissect tons of data and history lessons that he included in this book. You'll hear him mention that he researched and reviewed over a thousand different studies before crafting together Fiber Fueled. We go in depth on the latest medical science of gut health, and this includes practical tips on how you could transform your gut bugs to overcome food sensitivities and many gut-related autoimmune diseases. Mark my words, in the next 15 years, the research that Dr. B highlights will not just revolutionize the way modern medicine is practiced, but it'll also help evolve how we as a world view the connecting thread between biodiversity and ecosystems on a macro and micro scale. I'm so excited to get your feedback on this one, fam. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Make sure you tell every single person that you know and love about this show because it would mean the world to our team and it would help us medspire more individuals like yourself. And no matter where you are in the world, you can tag us on Instagram and we'll start a conversation with you. Tag us in your stories, share us in your posts, and we'll make sure we reach out. And a special thank you to our sponsor today, Pigmonic. I personally use Pygmonic in my studies for step one 
directly off of my iPhone. Their learning system powers thousands of mnemonic videos and quizzes that have been scientifically proven to increase long-term memory retention by up to 331%. And trust me, they're not lying. There was things on the USMLEs that I would have never remembered if I didn't remember the Pygmonic. It sounds crazy, but it's kind of like Cliff Notes meets Saturday morning cartoons for higher education. They help med students, NPs, PAs, PharmDs, RNs, LPNs, paramedics, and pre-med students rock their course exams, boards, and become more competent healthcare providers. Pygmonic has partnered with Medspiration to help make learning and memorizing easier than ever. So I know the CEO personally and we got you a pretty sweet deal here. You could check them out for free. If you sign up, you'll get instant access to a free video and quiz every day, no credit card required. You can use the promo code MEDSPIRATION for 20% off any premium subscription. Again guys, I would really recommend checking them out and trying out their resources. I promise you won't be disappointed. We'll have a link provided to you in the description below. And now, without further ado, let the MEDSPIRATION begin. Dr. Bolsewicz. Welcome to the Medspiration Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to introduce to you one of my greatest Medspirations when it comes to getting my gut right and understanding the latest and greatest science when it pertains to the microbiome. Dr. B, without further ado, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Nav, first of all, thank you, my friends, for having me on the show. It's a great pleasure to, to be here, have this conversation with you, and I hope that your listeners are going to find this to be really useful and, and, and fun, honestly, and crazy, because there's so much exciting stuff that's happening with the gut. And, you know, just to kind of frame where we're going to be going today, you know, for your listeners, for those of you who haven't met me before, I'm a gastroenterologist. I actually do that for a living. I work full-time as a GI doctor, so I specialize in the stomach, the intestines. You know, I'm like the poop doc. <laughs> so <laughs> I like to say I'm the poop whisperer <laughs> That's funny. and it's true. It's true. I like to, you know, work the magic to make people poop. But, you know, sort of the backstory for me is that I, ch I transformed my own health. I transformed my own life through, you know, honestly healing my gut and diet was the driving factor there, changing my diet, moving away from the diet that I was raised on and moving towards something that really feeds the microbiome that changed my life. I lost 50 pounds. I got rid of anxiety issues, blood pressure issues, got my energy back. I got my self-esteem back. I had very low self-esteem when I was a resident in like my late twenties, early thirties. And it was so powerful for me that I felt compelled to bring it into my clinic as a GI doctor. And then I saw patient after patient with acid reflux, with irritable bowel, with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, one after another healing their body just by changing their diet, just by changing their the food that they eat. It was so much that I was like, I got to a point in 2016 where I was like, you know what, I gotta I gotta tell people about this. It's not enough just to like be in this clinic and, and be helping people, you know, eight, eight to five every day. So I started my Instagram account, which is the Gut Health MD. That started to connect with people. Messages were coming in from all over the world, like literally Australia and New Zealand. It was Again, like I was just like, wow, people are like, there's an energy here. Like people are really digging this. I got to the point where I was like, you know what? What's the ultimate way to bottle up energy? Like if you have thoughts, if you got ideas and you want to uh, really bottle it up, 
you got to put pen to paper. You got to write it. So here it is, Fiber Fueled. Fiber Fueled is my book. It came out in May this year. It was an instant New York Times bestselling book. And now here we are heading into the holiday season and I've sold more than 80,000 copies of this book. Wow. And it's just incredible, man, because again, messages pouring in from around the world of people who are healing just by following the simple principles that I wrote in a book. And as a doctor, I know that you can appreciate this, Nev, that as a doctor, it's a dream come true to be able to do something, anything that enhances people's health and enhances their life. And to have it be a book that just goes out to the masses and changes the way they think about their food, it's just been an unbelievable privilege for me. And so it's a great privilege to be here today with you. Wow, that's that's so incredible. I'm just glad it's having the success it has. Um, and like you were saying, my intention today is to be able to dissect your New York Times bestselling book, uh, to break it down into digestible pieces for our audience. I have to say, uh, I just finished reading it yesterday and um, I loved how objective and data-driven it was. My personal favorite are the history lessons. You know, you actually provided a lot of context into what gave rise to the standard American diet. And, you know, being a being a doctor in this country and seeing the diet and how my patients are with their diet, I honestly, I learned a lot from this book and there's a lot I'll be applying. And first, I want to start with your training and your personal path to better health. You kind of mentioned a little bit about that. So can you tell us more about your academic journey and what led you to completely change the way that you ate? All right. Dang, man. I was trying to cover it up, but now I have to admit that I'm a nerd because you asked me to, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I wanted to pretend to be cool for a little bit longer, but I guess here we are 10 minutes in and I'm already coming out as a full-fledged nerd. Good. <laughs> All right. So the story is like this. I was a medical student at Georgetown in DC and during my third year, I was going on my clinical rotations. What I found was that I loved internal medicine, the idea of understanding the human body, understanding how to take complex medical issues, like a patient who's in the ICU, and peel apart the layers and create plans that will address these complex medical issues. You know, that to me was super exciting and attractive. I wanted to use my brain to basically like help people. But then on the flip side, there was a part of me that loved the idea of like putting my hands to good use as well. And so when you start thinking about how can I balance this, how can I use my hands, but also use my brain at the same time. There's only so many specialties that really are a mix between medical therapy and surgical therapy. And my field, gastroenterology, is one of those fields. I'm more medical than I am surgical, but I use my hands about half the time. And so so I was very attracted to that at Georgetown and um, made that decision during my third year of medical school. So I pursued, you know, internal medicine first, which I did at Northwestern in Chicago. I was the chief medical resident at Northwestern. While I was there, actually, I got the opportunity to pursue a master's degree in clinical investigation. Basically, Northwestern was like, look, you're going to be our chief resident. We'll actually pay for you to get a master's degree. I was like, hold up, you're going to pay for a master's degree from Northwestern. Like I don't have the money for that degree, but if you're willing to pay for it, I'll show up to class. Right. So I actually took nighttime classes wow. and, um, yeah, I'm not kidding you. I would be, uh, so the graduate school was down the street in downtown Chicago, just down the street from the hospital. And I would be sitting in class with my pager and the pager would go off and I'd be like, okay, guys got to run. And I would run down the street to the ICU, take care of my patient, wow. and then run back to class. And I was interested in clinical research. I had great mentors. My mentors are some of the leading gastroenterologists in the country. And so I was publishing papers. 
years. I was studying to be to get this master's. And then I went to the University of North Carolina because it really aligned with my interests because they have such a strong school of public health. So I was very interested in studying epidemiology and the University of North Carolina, their school of public health, basically it's them, UNC, Johns Hopkins and Harvard. That's the top three every year. It's just a question of like, who are you going to make one, two versus three? But it's always the same three. So yeah, so I went to the University of North Carolina and I was in an epidemiology fellowship in addition to training to become a specialist. So yeah, man. And I, I published um, over 20 papers. I've given more than 40 presentations at meetings, at, you know, national meetings um, in my field. So I have this background in clinical research, but what's interesting is my true passion is with people. The challenge for me was that if you want to be a researcher, you have to like really commit like all in. You're not going to be a clinical doctor. You're going to be a researcher. And I just couldn't make that commitment. I loved taking care of patients too much. When I got to the end of my training, I was like, you know what? I, I just am too passionate about caring for patients. So I let go of the research side and went into patient care, became a clinical doctor, which is what I continue to do. But what's interesting is that, you know, I thought like, and it was a hard choice for me because I was I mean, I had put, you know, who knows, thousands of hours into understanding the complexities of clinical research. And I thought I was letting go of it, mm -hmm. and just saying goodbye. And now, you know, the funny thing about it is now here we are. And I'm like actually applying the things that I learned in my research training. And I'm almost like the interpreter. So I may not be the one who's actually publishing the study, but what I am is I'm the guy who has the background to tell you how to understand the study. And that's what I brought forward with my book, Fiber Field. And I think that's part of what's really connecting for people is I have over 600 references in this book, mm -hmm. but I'm packaging it in a way where it's like, look, for me, like I know for me, and I'm sure it's true for you too, I'm not going to read a book if it's boring. Of course. Yeah. Right. I don't need another medical textbook. I want it to be fun. So I wrote this book to be fun to read, but below the surface, you know, it's grounded in science, 600 yeah. studies that are there. And that was, that was my favorite part. Um, you made it easily digestible, not just for medical professionals, but just normal everyday people. Uh, but you present evidence and maybe it's your background, you know, since you had such a deep background in research, the way it came together in this book, I really felt like it was, it was pretty awesome. Uh, one of the points that you specifically made in this book, and it's a great opening point for us. You say, I believe in chapter one, each of us consumes an average of three pounds of food a day. That's almost a thousand pounds of food per year. And a few milligrams of medicine will never be as important as the 80,000 pounds of food that you'll eat in a lifetime. Now, you mentioned in your book, when you graduated from med school in 2006, uh, we knew next to nothing about the gut microbiome. And now we have very sufficient evidence that the microbiota, it ties to the immune system, metabolism, hormones, cognition, gene expression. So why should we all be knowledgeable about our personal family of bugs that we have? We should all be knowledgeable because I, since this is gonna sound so weird, but I truly believe this, that the most important thing for human health isn't even human. Yeah, It's these microbes. They're not human, but they are as alive as you and I are, my friends. They're as alive as we are. And they literally outnumber our human cells. There are 39 trillion of these microbes that are part of each one of us on our skin, in our mouth, inside of a woman's vagina, but concentrated inside the colon. That's where you'll find most of them. And they set up shop there and they play a critical role, almost like 
This is the center of human health. This is the command center. They play a critical role in keeping things working the way that they're supposed to. You know, basically, if you go back through human history, if we could identify the very first man, the very first woman, they had a microbiome. There was no sterile human. We always had a microbiome and we evolved with them. We think about human evolution as if it occurred in isolation, but it did not. It occurred in balance, in harmony with the microbes inside of us. And if we live, they live too, right? And if we die, they don't get to carry on. So they want us to live. These microbes are there to support us. And through the millions of years of human evolution, we grew to trust them with some really important stuff. We trust them with basically giving us access to our nutrition, with digestion of our food. Like how can we live without nutrition or digestion? Mm -hmm. And we trusted them with that. They're connected to our immune system. 70% of our immune system lives in our gut. They balance our metabolism. There's so much evidence that shows how they connect to insulin sensitivity, to weight balance, to satiety after a meal. When you eat food and you feel full, these gut microbes are a part of that equation. They're connected to our hormones, to our brain, our mood, our cravings. It's crazy to think about. Like literally almost everything that matters in human health. Again, like guys, think about it. Our immune system, our digestion, our mood, our metabolism, our hormones, what's left? I honestly don't know what's left, right? And it's all connected back to the gut. So it's not to say that this is the only thing that matters, but that is to say that this matters a lot mm -hmm. and we need to pay attention to that. I, I couldn't agree more with that. You know, you say some of the coolest things. Uh, I was listening to a few of your other podcasts and, and you said something that it kind of changed the way I looked at things. Our colon, it's the closest we get to the outside world is what you were saying. Cause we have, we have skin, our body is really protective, you know? So we, we don't really have much contact with the outside world, but when we eat, the food goes through our immune system and then it eventually ends up in the colon where we have such a close connection to what's actually outside of us. I found that so fascinating because I never really thought of it like that. And then you started talking about the microbes and how they procreate. Now, how often are they procreating? Some of these microbes are, are literally turning over a new generation every 20 minutes. So am I in the clock right here? And we've been talking for just over 20 minutes. Yeah. So guess what? If you've been listening to us on this podcast, you have a new generation of microbes that were just born. Congratulations. <laughs> so, but you know, if you start thinking about that, a human generation takes at least, I mean, let's call it 20 years, mm -hmm. right? A, a human generation takes 20 years. A new microbial generation takes 20 minutes. And so if we take that and we start to extrapolate that, think about that, like in an hour, you have three new generations of microbes. That's the equivalent of a hundred years of human evolution, right? And so in in one day, in 24 hours, you can spawn the equivalent number of generations that would take us in human history. It would take us all the way back to the pyramids, right? We're talking about thousands of years, thousands of years of human evolution. These microbes are doing the equivalent in just 24 hours. And this is why our choices, you know, it's hard to imagine this because we think of everything in like our time, right? And it's, it's almost like the movie Inception. Yeah where it's like different things are running on different timescales. But when you think about like your dietary choices that you make today will affect the balance of microbes for dozens of generations over the next 24 hours. And this is why when we study this, we've shown that in just 24 hours, you can already start to change your microbiome if you change your diet. That's really empowering, if anything, because that means like even one thing that I put into my mouth makes a difference to my microbiome. Is that correct? This is, I completely agree. This is completely empowering. And this is the thing that changed things for 
for me. Like I, I, I said in the beginning that I was 50 pounds overweight. I had low self-esteem, low energy. And what helped me to move forward with my diet and change things was not, hey, you need to avoid this and avoid that. Instead, it was the realization that you can fuel this engine. This is the engine for human health. And you can fuel this engine with simple dietary choices. So rather than running away from food monsters, which I just don't believe in that, like you're not going to hear me talking about how, oh my gosh, get away from that. Instead, what you need to do is you need to gravitate towards the food that fuels these microbes. When you make those simple dietary choices, when you gravitate towards that meal, you are healing your body. You are nurturing your body. You're giving it what it needs to thrive and be the best version of itself. Yeah, that's that's so awesome. Now, what is dysbiosis? Okay, so dysbiosis, let's, let's kind of juxtapose this against eubiosis, mm-hmm. okay? And so eubiosis is harmony. It is balance. Our microbiome, these, I said there were 39 trillion. Okay, and just to unpack this a little bit, they're made up of bacteria, mostly bacteria, but also fungi and these things that are called archaea. Archaea are quite fascinating. They're not bacteria. They're not fungi. And they've been on this planet for four billion years. Okay, four billion years. We've only had oxygen for two point five billion years. Like no matter what happens on this planet, I can tell you what the archaea will still be hanging in there because they're that tough. And we may have parasites and we all have viruses. Okay, so you have all this. You have bacteria, fungi, archaea, potentially parasites and viruses. And they live in harmony and balance like an ecosystem. It is conceptually the same as the Amazon rainforest or the Great Barrier Reef. And so eubiosis means that you have harmony, you have balance, you have all the players. Yeah, there's some bad guys in there, but you know what? The bad guys, they actually play a role too. Mm -hmm. And as long as you don't let them get too out of control, they don't really do anything. They don't cause any trouble. So now if you take that and you compare it to a loss of balance, a loss of harmony, the bad guys are now running wild. They're in control. The good guys have been decimated. They're not able to keep up and do their job anymore. That's what dysbiosis is. Dysbiosis means that we have moved away from the harmony and balance. There's a loss of balance. There's a loss of the good guys. There's too many of the bad guys. And now your gut, which again is connected to your to your digestion, to your to your immune system, your metabolism, your hormones, your mood. The problem is that it's connected to so many things downstream. If it's not able to do its job, there's going to be consequences. And that's what dysbiosis is. And this is the reason why when we study dysbiosis, we find that dysbiosis is present when people have digestive issues, when people have immune issues, when people have metabolic issues. It's no surprise that damage to the gut will manifest with these specific problems because the gut plays such an important role in making sure that things are working the way they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. What immunologic conditions have been linked to dysbiosis? Oh my gosh, how much time we got? <laughs> <laughs> so so what's interesting is this. When I was writing the book, you know, you take a deep dive, you start taking a deep dive into the research. As I said, more than 600 studies are in this book. And I can guarantee you, I didn't include every study that I reviewed. I reviewed over a thousand studies to write this book. That's awesome. And what's fascinating is that as I was looking at the connection between the gut and the immune system. So, you know, just to frame this for you guys who are listening at home, whether you have a medical background or not, if you were to zoom in with a microscope and look at the gut, what you would see is there is this single layer of cells called the epithelial layer. This single layer of cells 
is invisible to the naked eye and it acts like a fence. And on one side of the epithelial layer is your gut microbiome. 39 trillion strong. And on the other side is 70% of your immune system because 70% of your immune system lives in your gut. This single layer of cells may physically separate them, but they are talking to each other. They are in constant communication. And so the problem becomes that if you, if you damage the gut, then you are disrupting the communication with the immune system and a damaged gut will manifest with a confused immune system. If you want a, a healthy immune system, you need a healthy gut. Mm -hmm. And as I was researching the book, what I saw is that literally every single allergic and autoimmune issue, which are examples of a confused immune system, every single one where I was able to find the study, hey, what's happening in the gut? The answer was 100% of the time the same. Yeah. Damage to the gut, dysbiosis in 100% of the cases where they've studied what's happening in the gut when you have an allergic or an autoimmune issue. Wow. Yeah. And you mentioned in the book, you had some pretty cool charts in there. Type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, multiple sclerosis, asthma, rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, lupus. It just goes on and on. And it's, uh, it's pretty interesting to see it from that perspective. Some of the most complicated cases I deal with from a gut health standpoint, I've noticed uh, my patients that have emotional trauma, physical trauma, sexual trauma, mental trauma, they have the most complicated gut microbiome. So I, I wanted to ask you this question, like what's what's the connection there? Oh my gosh, this is, I, so first of all, this is such an important issue. Oh yeah. Okay, because, and I'm glad that you brought this up because it is so easy to fixate on food mm -hmm. and say, what are we supposed to eat to have a healthy gut? And there are people who come to my clinic every day, they eat exactly what they're supposed to eat, they exercise, they sleep, they do, they meditate, they do everything, right? Yeah. And what's holding them back is what you just mentioned, which is that the person who has an open battle wound from pr prior trauma or abuse, or the person who is grappling with a pattern of disordered eating, whether that be anorexia or bulimia or orthorexia, whatever it may be, the person who's grappling with disordered eating, the person who, who who has an open battle wounds from prior trauma or abuse, these are the people that are actually the most difficult to heal in terms of their gut. And the reason why is because you can focus too much on food and all these other things, exercise and sleep, meditation. But if you don't heal the wound, mm -hmm. you'll never heal your gut. And it's, it's the stress from those particular issues. Stress manifests with dysbiosis. Mm -hmm. This is the reason why what I'm seeing right now in my clinic is a ton of people who are flaring in their Crohn's disease, their ulcerative colitis, their irritable bowel syndrome, their acid reflux, they're flaring because the stress of 2020, and we all know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. <laughs> is manifesting in their gut with dysbiosis. Mm -hmm. Man, that's that's phenomenal. I, I have noticed that there was a few patients that had PTSD. Once they got some treatment for the PTSD, uh, specifically EMDR and, and different other modalities, uh, it did make a difference in, in their gut. And this is where it was just so fascinating to think about that. Well, our mind is so connected to our gut that it's nearly inseparable, you know? Yeah, I want to give a quick shout out to one of my mentors. His name is Doug Drossman. Dr. Doug Drossman. And um, if you look up the textbook for irritable bowel syndrome, it's mm -hmm. called the Rome Criteria. All right. And they, they're on, I believe, Rome 4 
now. So there's four updates of this book. Well, he is the author of the Rome Criteria. He is the guy who in the 80s was the pioneer helping us to understand what irritable bowel syndrome is. And because irritable bowel syndrome, for the people who don't have a background in medicine, is a person who has abdominal pain, a change in bowel habits, whether it be diarrhea or constipation, and the, the abdominal pain improves when they have a bowel movement. And we see this pattern, you see this pattern in your clinic, and I see this pattern in mine every single day. Mm-hmm. And yet we don't have a test to prove what's going on with the oral bowel syndrome. Right, you know, yeah. we don't have. And so anyway, I wanna give a quick shout out to, to Doug Drossman. And what's fascinating is I was in his clinic when I was at the University of North Carolina, and we would spend two hours with one patient. Wow. And by spending that extra time, it allowed us in one visit to develop the rapport that we needed so that a patient would feel comfortable sharing things like, hey, I have a history of abuse or hey, like I used to struggle with anorexia. And when those things became clear, we would we would target our therapy to those specific issues. And what we would find is that medications that are used to treat things like anxiety or depression, mm. when you use them at a very low dose, they can have incredible healing effects in the gut. Yeah. And part of the reason why, which is quite fascinating, is that many of the neurotransmitters, so like take serotonin, for example. Serotonin is the happy hormone. It controls our mood, our focus, our energy levels. 90 to 95% of serotonin is produced in your gut. Mm-hmm. Only 5 to 10% is actually produced in your brain. And the reason why is because serotonin affects gut motility. And so when you take the person who has irritable bowel syndrome and you put them on a little bit of medication that can affect serotonin, that's literally all you need to restore motility and get their gut back in alignment. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, and even the the ACEs study uh, that, that looked into childhood trauma and how it went on to affect chronic disease, uh, the root of that study, it was actually due to eating disorders. Uh, they started noticing that patients weren't, uh, people who had trauma, they had such a, an adverse relationship with food. So again, it goes all, it always goes back to the gut. And I just heard you say on a podcast very recently that uh, Hippocrates has said that the majority of disease, it starts in the gut. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, Hippocrates said that. And that was literally like 2,500 years ago. <laughs> oh, right. That, that predates Jesus. Now think of that. That's, that's pretty deep if you think yeah. about it. Now, uh, next question I had for you. What is the hygiene hypothesis and how does our understanding of that, how has it evolved since we've learned about the microbiome? The hygiene hypothesis is something that many people have probably heard of in one form or another because it dates back to the 1980s. And, you know, basically what it was, was that in the 80s, we were trying to figure out, like, what's the deal with the explosion of allergic diseases, like asthma, like seasonal allergies? What's the deal with this explosion? What's the deal with the explosion of autoimmune issues? Like, celiac disease is up 500% in the last 50 years. Why is that? And we were looking for answers. And what they found is that in homes where it was an excessive level of cleanliness, people were prone to having more of these allergic or autoimmune type issues. And so the original hypothesis was that there is a paradoxical relationship between cleanliness and the function of our immune system. Excessive cleanliness can disrupt the immune system and lead to allergic or autoimmune 
issues. And so it was really kind of looking at that, like, have we gone too far in cleaning up our house in terms of living inside, living in sterile environments, in terms of the stuff that we use in the shower? But we are reevaluating this idea. And scientists are now looking at this and saying, hold up. That was like 1989 that Professor Strakan, who's from the UK, that he came up with this idea. And now here we are. And, you know, it's 30 years later and we have all this science about the microbiome. And maybe the issue is that our modern lifestyle, which if you think about it, has changed so much in 100 years. Right. Maybe the issue is that our modern lifestyle is not just disrupting the immune system, but instead is disrupting the microbiome. And by disrupting the microbiome, you are disrupting the immune system, which is what we expect to happen. Yeah, this uh, this gets pretty deep because uh, you mentioned in the book from 1960 to 2000, the incidence of asthma, it's increased at least tenfold in the Western world. Uh, we look at autoimmune diseases, it's literally parallel to that when you look at type one diabetes, MS, Crohn's. So I found this so interesting. And that's kind of where I wanted to go into this history lesson that you that you hit on in your book. And it gave me a new perspective on kind of how we got to the standard American diet. So you took us back to the 19th century, uh, where you said that the average life expectancy was around 47. And, and the top cause of death were infectious causes, right? So can you take us through uh, Louis Pasteur's discovery of what we now call the modern germ theory, and how it's now transitioned into chronic disease, like heart disease and cancer? All right. So if we go back to frame this conversation, we're mm-hmm. starting off around the time of the American Civil War. All right. So it's like the mid 1850s into the early 1860s. And while we're having this, you know, war for to, to define the American Republic in France, there's these scientists who are starting to ask questions about what's causing people to die. And what's fascinating is that at the time, I mean, this is so crazy because it's not that long ago, okay? It's really not that long ago. And at that time, the theory was called miasma theory, all right? Now, miasma, M-I-A-S-M-A. I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast, when you get to this moment, hit the pause button and go Google miasma, okay? Because what you're going to find is a floating skeleton passing over a swamp. It's almost like a a supernatural thing. People didn't understand naturally what was killing everyone, right? The plague, the plague wiped out like literally 30% of Europeans. Imagine losing, you know, three out of 10 friends, right? And family. They didn't know the plague was caused by a bacteria. Basically, they were looking for answers and the theory at the time was, was that this like borderline supernatural thing called miasma, almost like you walk by a swamp at night and there's like a funky smell and it's eerie and there's a mist over the water. And you're like, that's it. That's what caused the plague right there. That's it, right? Oh my goodness. So, okay, so that's where we were, which sounds insanely primitive, but this is the reason why we need science because even things that we do today in 2020, even things that we do in 2020, when you and I are older, my friend, we're gonna look back and we're gonna be like, what were we thinking, right? Yeah, yeah. So Louis Pasteur, around the time of the Civil War, is in France and he starts to explore wine and the spoilage of milk. And what he discovers and starts to understand is that there are these microbes which are visible under a microscope, but invisible to the naked eye. And as a result, this is the reason why you can ferment grapes into wine. 
It's not just magic. There actually are these microbes that do it for us. And the same is true with the spoilage of milk. There are microbes that basically spoil and consume the milk. And when he does this, all of a sudden, the light bulb starts to go off. Now, like literally leading up to 1900, there were still people who were like, yo, that's quack. That's whack. Okay. Oh, that's crazy. Seriously. The, uh, leading up to 1900, there were still people that were like, no, no, no. This is the miasma is where it's at. That's quack. That <laughs> Pastor stuff. What are you talking about, man? Right. Anytime you have a breakthrough scientific idea, people are going to call you a quack. Yep. Anyway, so it leads us up to the turn of the 20th century. And the top causes of death are all infections. You go down the line. It's like pneumonia and influenza and tuberculosis. And we just, we didn't have anything that we could do. And we now start to understand around that time that this is what was killing us. Mm. And we start to make changes. We're starting to fight back against it. So we're like, okay, we got to clean up our water supply. Okay, we got to sterilize our food. We need soap and we got to wash our hands, right? Now, I am not saying that these are bad things. What I am saying, though, is that we created the enemy, we defined the enemy, and we we built basically weapons of war against the enemy, and we took it to them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we took it to them a little too hard because it got to the point that we're taking it to the point where you're not just fighting back the bad microbes, you're fighting back all the microbes and most of these microbes are really really good for us and so now here we are and you start to move through the 20th century and it's like okay we got preservatives and we got these chemicals that we're spraying out there on our crops and you know and we got antibiotics and we're using these antibiotics everywhere like you know your kid gets an ear uh, like a little bit of an ear pain or a little bit of sniffles it's like here's an antibiotic boom go we overdid it mm -hmm. and we lost sight that maybe these microbes are actually good for us oh yeah and th this was so much mind-blowing for me just to be able to piece it all together because uh, then it kind of gets into the standard American diet, you know, and how in 1994 GMOs are introduced and how these genetically modified organisms, when they arrive to our stores, I think you said today more than 80% of all genetically modified crops grown worldwide have been engineered to be herbicide tolerant. What does that mean? What we're talking about here now, like, let me, I, I want to frame this conversation a little bit. I am not, by the way, saying that genetically modified is in inherently bad. Mm -hmm. There are places where genetically modified, we will find in the future, I can assure you that it's really, really good. Okay. Okay. But what we did do is we took things like corn, soy, and cotton, and they genetically modified them so that they would be resistant to being sprayed with the herbicide glyphosate. Glyphosate is what you find in Roundup. Herbicide basically means it kills all the other weeds. These are weed killers. So if you and I had a farm, we could plant traditional soy and corn and cotton, and we can fight against those weeds, or we could take these genetically modified corn, soy, and cotton, plant them, spray them with Roundup. And what you would find is that, gosh, we're getting way bigger yields. We're getting way more poundage from the same acre, from the same number of acres of land. And so for the farmer, this is conceptually a great idea mm -hmm. until it destroys your soil. And that's the problem is, do we have the foresight to see 
see what's actually going to happen when we spray, because where we are right now is there are 10 billion, 10 billion gallons of this herbicide that have been sprayed across the globe. And we can't take that back. It's already happened. And the question that we have is, is that good for human health? Is that okay for our microbiome? What's the effect on ecosystems? What's the effect on our soil? And the problem is that to really answer those questions, to truly answer them, you can't just infer with short-term studies. You need long-term studies and they have to be human studies or they have to be microbiome studies or they have to be soil studies. And those haven't been done. Yeah. And so so it raises questions as to is this are we do we feel comfortable? with this idea uh, because the World Health Organization has labeled glyphosate as a carcinogen, mm -hmm. okay? And we have studies from both the UK and from France, different studies that connected eating conventional foods instead of organic, eating conventional foods to increased risk of developing lymphoma. And guess what? In a different study in the United States, they studied glyphosate and found increased risk of developing lymphoma with exposure to glyphosate. So the point being, that I have concerns about our agricultural practices mm -hmm. and we need additional studies. I'll be the first to say that. And the second thing is just to be completely clear, because I want everyone to really know how I feel about this. I'm not saying that you should avoid eating conventionally raised plants. Eating conventionally raised plants is still superior to eating junk food or eating conventionally raised meat. But what I am saying, though, is that when I have the opportunity for my family, when I have the opportunity to buy organic, this is the reason why I buy organic, because it's the way to keep this stuff out of the food supply. It's the only way to keep this stuff out of the food supply from this space uh, the best place to go is the the blue zones you know uh, what can we learn from blue zones and how can we implement things like that into our life the blue zones are five areas five specific geographic regions from around the world that where people have been found to live to 100 years at a rate that is off the charts mm -hmm. it was defined in a book called the blue zones by dan buettner all right and the book's about 15 years old and it's a fantastic book if you haven't read it you guys should definitely pick it up all right and so these five places are Sardinia off the coast of Italy, Ikaria, which is one of the Greek Isles, Okinawa, Japan, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. And then the fifth one is actually right here in our country, which is Loma Linda, California, Yeah, which, which is fascinating because if you look, people who live in Loma Linda, California live on average 10 years more than the average American. So what are they doing? These are the Seventh-day Adventists. Mm -hmm. And the Seventh-day Adventists, they their culture within their religious practice motivates them to have specific lifestyle habits. And you find a huge proportion of the Seventh-day Adventists who are either vegan, vegetarian, or pescatarian. A mm -hmm. huge proportion. And so now if you look at all five blue zones, there are common themes. Here's what you'll find. Literally all five blue zones are at least 90% plant-based. Okay. Literally 90% plant-based. That's that's the big thing. Oh, definitely. So, I mean, if you think about it, like you think about, you know, Sardinia and Acaria, Nicoya Peninsula and Costa Rica, right? These, these are diets that are built off of locally available foods, right? They're not eating junk food. Yeah. They're not eating processed food. They're eating real food. They're not necessarily vegan. In fact, the majority of them are not. But what they are is they're they're making the centerpiece of their of their plate the plants. Got it. And when they do eat meat, it's more of a celebratory meal mm -hmm. and it tends to be smaller portion and they do it for flavor. They do it because they enjoy the flavor of it, but they're not doing it for calories. They're not driving their diet with mostly, 
you know, animal products. That makes sense. So what about the Hadza tribe of Tanzania and their similarities to this? Yeah. So the Hadza tribe are quite fascinating. So like, you know, I just named these five blue zones. Okay. And these are, again, the people who live to be 100 years old at a rate off the charts. The Hadza are an interesting case study because it's a tribe of people that, that live in Tanzania, in Africa, and they are living a traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyle. So they are not, they don't have agriculture. They don't have farms. They, they forage and they hunt. And when you study the Hadza, by the way, there's a guy, his name is Justin Sonnenberg. He's from Stanford. And Sonnenberg is one of the guys, if you pick up my book, you'll see his endorsement of my book because he agrees with what I'm saying. And that's because we're looking at the science. Sonnenberg, he actually went to Tanzania. Oh, that's cool. And he inserted himself into the tribe. And here's what he found. So again, they're hunters and gatherers. They're not going to the supermarket. Okay. They don't have money. They forage for their food. And what he found is that they ate a diet that was predominantly plant-based with tremendous tremendous plant diversity. Literally, they were consuming hundreds of different plants on a yearly basis. I would ask each of you listening to us right now, think for yourself, like how many plants do you think you've had in your diet in the last week, in the last month? And my guess is that that's a number that's less than 50. Oh yeah, probably. Okay. And because we eat the same stuff over and over again. Mm-hmm. Here's the Hudza and they're eating a diet that is like literally 600 different plants per year. And when they study the microbiome of the Hudza, which is what Sonnenberg did, what he found is that the, they had literally 30% more diversity within their microbiome. Diversity means different species. Okay. They had 30% more diversity than a person from the UK. Now, diversity is a measure of health within the microbiome. So they have a far healthier microbiome than a person from the UK. Well, guess what? How about the US? They had 40% more diversity than an American. So they have a radically different, radically more healthy microbiome. And one of the things that's quite fascinating that's happening now is that many of these microbiome researchers, Mm -hmm. they're getting concerned that we are destroying species of microbes that we can't get back. And so believe it or not, what they're doing is they're cataloging species of microbes and they're saving them. So they're studying the Hudza and they're saying, we got like, we got to get poop samples from these people. Yeah. Because the Hudza a hundred years from now probably will not exist as a tribe. Wow. And we're worried that some of their microbes may, we may need to bring them back. Since we're on the topic of poop, uh, you've you've mentioned the gut microbiota. It has extreme control over the way we process our food and our metabolism. Uh, One study that you mentioned in the book, it was pretty mind-blowing. They took identical human twins who were genetically the same, but one was obese and the other was thin. Uh, Researchers took the stool from the twins and they transferred it to germ-free mice. What were the results of that? Okay, so, and you described this very well identical twins, same genetics. One is skinny, one is obese. You take the poop, one from each, one you know, one from each of the twins, you put it into these germ-free mice, and then you feed these mice. Some people, you know, we all know that person who can eat whatever they want, and they're always skinny. How do they do that? They got the microbiome on their side. How about the person who, who you know, they struggle, they fight, they do everything they can to try to lose weight, they just can't do it. Why? Because their microbiome, unfortunately, has been adapted and built to extract calories efficiently. And that's why that person, you know, it's not just calories in, calories out. There actually is complexity where the microbiome can adjust the way that we interact with those calories. Wow. Yeah, that's that's incredible. What does this mean for fecal transplants in the future? Well, we're starting to study them. 
And we, so fecal transplants, it's quite interesting because we are using them therapeutically to treat people that have an infection yeah. called C. difficile. And the C. difficile infection, you know, the problem that we had is that when I was like about 10 years ago, when I was a GI fellow, I had patients that were perpetually on antibiotics because I didn't have any way to get rid of this infection until we started using fecal transplant. And what's interesting is when you do a fecal transplant, what you're doing is you are restoring eubiosis. You are taking it from dysbiosis to eubiosis. You re are restoring harmony and balance. And when you do that, the good guys will suppress the C. diff and it will go away within 24 to 48 hours. So fecal transplant is indicated and highly effective for clearing this, this nasty infection, C. difficile. We don't have any approval for other indications yet, but we are studying the possibility of fecal transplant being used for other things in the future. And so it'll be interesting to see what the research shows shows us. Yeah, whether it'll be like for short term or long term. I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting how, how that works out. You make poop sound so interesting, by the way. <laughs> it is interesting. That's why I've dedicated my life to poop. I, this is what I do from eight to five, five days a week. <laughs> That is so cool. Uh, there's another incredible study I, I just wanted to mention. It had to do with the dirty diapers of uh, 300 toddlers at three months of age. So they, they discovered the specific changes in the gut bacteria. This early in life, they could actually predict whether these kids would go on to develop asthma, right? So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, this is crazy. They they took poop specimens from three-month-olds and analyzed the poop specimens from the from the three-month-olds, and they were able to use that information just three months of age and just the poop specimen. They're not like checking their genetics. They're not drawing a blood specimen. They're not checking their lungs. Oh, man. They're checking their poop. Wow. They were able to predict successfully which of these kids would ultimately go on to develop asthma years later, which is so interesting because it shows you not only the connection between our immune system and our gut microbes, because asthma is an allergic disease it is manifest from the immune system, not only showing us that connection, but showing us that you could predate the emergence of the disease with wow. changes that are already underway within the microbiome. That, that's groundbreaking. I mean, that, that's pretty incredible. And then it got me thinking, we have the honor and privilege of helping and assisting uh, bringing new life into this world. And, and one of the things that comes up is breastfeeding and bottle feeding, specifically like in our hospital, they'll use Similac or Infant meal and they'll give that to the to the mom to give to the baby and if you look at the ingredients of, of some of these formulas they have high fructose corn syrup in them do you know any research about this so it's quite interesting to think about the connection between breast milk and the developing microbiome of the newborn baby mm -hmm. a baby is born not sterile, but this is the closest they will ever be to being sterile when they're born. So you start at that point and you will see the rapid expansion and growth with new microbes as they develop their microbiome. By the time that baby is two to three years of age, that child has a fully formed adult sized microbiome. So like my son is four and he's a little man, but he's got a full grown man's microbiome. Right. So and when you think about that development process, there are some important parts that play a role. And let me just say before I uh, jump into this, that if you're listening to this, you know, breastfeeding a child is not easy. 
my wife, we have two kids. My wife breastfed both of our kids, but it was not easy in the beginning. It is a struggle. And if it's not possible, I don't want you to feel like your child will not be healthy based upon what I'm about to say. You can have healthy children who are not breastfed. But I think it's important to acknowledge that human breast milk is the perfect food. And there's parts of it that we don't understand or we're just beginning to understand that were designed to make it the perfect food galvanized through the millions of years of human evolution. And what's fascinating is that breast milk, we recently discovered that it contains these things called human milk oligosaccharides, HMOs. Okay, these HMOs, there's at least 200 varieties of HMOs within mom's breast milk, 200 varieties. And what's weird is that they serve zero nutritional purpose for the child. So we're like, what the heck? Why are these HMOs there? Here's what they discovered. These human milk oligosaccharides are prebiotic, which means that they are food for the developing microbiome. And so what they have shown is that mom evolved breast milk that is providing nutrition, not just to the child. Whoa. The breast milk is providing nutrition to the developing microbiome. And so now the new, the new trend in formula is to add a prebiotic supplement to it. It is, yeah, yep. But the problem is, so that's good, it's a step in the mm -hmm. right direction, right? But the problem is that you can't recreate the complexity of 200 varieties yeah. of human milk oligosaccharides with one specific type of fiber. And so that's, that is why mother nature tends to know what's best for us. Amen to that. And you know, now that we're on the topic, fiber, I mean, this is what the book's all about, fiber field. Can you tell us more about why fiber is like the ultimate food? Yeah, fiber. So, you know, we have really taken fiber for granted. We have made it the least appealing uh, sounding thing on the planet where it's like, you know, we all have images of our grandma stirring an orange drink <laughs> and then like chugging it back so that she could have a bowel movement. And that's not the fiber that I have grown to know and love. To me, fiber, fiber is sexy. And the reason why I say that, the way, the way that I say that, and I sincerely believe that, is that there's a new side of fiber that everyone needs to learn about. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just go in the mouth and then launch out the other end. Fiber is fuel for your gut microbes. You know, I said before, your gut microbes are the engine for human health and their preferred food, their fuel is fiber. Fiber goes in the mouth and we lack the enzymes to break down fiber. So it passes through our intestine unchanged until it enters into the colon. And when it enters into the colon, guess who has the enzymes to break down fiber? These gut microbes. Yeah, our gut, our gut bugs have the enzymes. And so they step up and they go, whoa, we're excited you're feeding us thank you so much and they basically break down the fiber using these enzymes called glycoside hydrolases so they break down the fiber and they transform it into what are called short chain fatty acids and these short chain fatty acids i'm talking about butyrate acetate and propionate y'all need to learn about these because we spend all this time talking in nutrition about gluten and phytates and lectins and it's such such an overhype like marketing thing mm -hmm. And what we're not talking about is what I think is 
the most important nutrient, which are which are these short chain fatty acids, which we get when fiber connects with microbes. Short chain fatty acids. Let me just walk through real quick a couple of things they do. They actually reverse dysbiosis, so they enhance the growth of the good guys. They actually suppress the growth of the bad guys, like E. coli, Salmonella, Shigella. Suppress them. They repair the lining of the intestine. I talked about the epithelial layer when we were talking about the immune system. So the epithelial layer. Some people when they have dysbiosis. The, the epithelial layer can start, start to break down. It can get ragged. And that leads to leaky gut. Mm-hmm. Short-chain fatty acids actually repair leaky gut. They actually repair the epithelial layer. They fix up the mining. They actually directly prevent colon cancer, the number two cause of cancer death in America. They communicate to our immune system. We, we see ways in which they optimize our immune system. They move us away from these allergic or autoimmune issues. Short-chain fatty acids affect our metabolism. We feel full after a meal because of the fiber content, because they produce short-chain fatty acids. They actually enhance our ability to maintain our, our ideal body weight. They lower our cholesterol. We think that they actually prevent heart disease, the number one killer. We think that they prevent cancer, the number two killer. They actually cross the blood-brain barrier. We believe that they actually prevent Alzheimer's disease. I mean, the bottom line, I could keep going for another hour. Yeah. The bottom line is that this is the most powerful anti-inflammatory molecule that you're ever going to find. And the only way to get it is to consume fiber. And the problem is that 97% of Americans are not eating enough fiber because we're eating processed food and excessive amounts of animal products. And we're ignoring the real fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. So mm-hmm. it's time for us to get back to eating this way with more real food. Can you give us specific examples of foods that are rich in fiber? Okay. This is the beauty of it. So two things. Number one, all plants contain fiber. So it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a nut or a seed or a leaf or celery, it doesn't matter. All plants contain fiber. You don't need to try too hard. You don't need specific types. You just need plants. Mm-hmm. And there are tons of plants out there that we can be eating. Point number two, every plant has its own unique types of fiber. So I mentioned with the breast milk, 200 varieties of HMOs. Why do we have different varieties? Why not just one? Yeah. Because every single type of human milk oligosaccharide feeds different populations of bacteria. These bacteria, they're picky eaters. Mm -hmm. They're picky eaters. They're like us. We don't all like the same food. We like different types of food. You and I don't eat the exact same way, right? We have our specific dietary preferences. The microbes are that way too. And so there's not just generic fiber. It's not just, hey, I need more fiber. Let me go take this Metamucil. No, no, no. Every plant has its own unique types of fiber. And those unique types of fiber will feed specific types of microbes. And so if we want a diverse microbiome, which is what I mentioned with the Hudza, Mm -hmm. you know, 40% more diversity among the Hudza compared to the US. If we want a diverse microbiome, what you need is you need a diet that is diverse in the different types of plants. And this is more than just idea. This is more than just theory. This was actually shown in the American Gut Project, Mm -hmm. which is the largest study to date to connect our lifestyle and our diet to the health of our microbiome. And when they studied it, when they analyzed it, they found that the clear-cut number one predictor of a healthy gut microbiome was the diversity of plants in your diet. And so here we are, and we're more than an hour into the show, and I just want y'all to know that I just dropped the single most important takeaway point from today, is that you need, no matter who you are, I don't care how you eat, standard American diet, paleo, keto, vegan, I don't care. Mm Get more plants in your diet. Get more different types of plants in your diet cool. because that's how you feed your microbiome. So I get patients who they eat a majority ultra processed diet. They 
suffer from severe food sensitivities. Sometimes they call them, call them food allergies. Uh, and they'll tell me, I try to eat healthy, but I end up having to eliminate certain foods because you know, I get bloated. I just don't feel right. I get crampy. Now, why does this happen? What do you say to patients that say that? Okay. This is probably the most important chapter in my book, chapter five. It is. Okay. It changed my life. <laughs> so how to, how to find your plant passion when you have a sensitive gut? Because what we've been told for the last 20 years, according to our most popular diets, is that if it causes gas and bloating, if it causes any sort of distress, that's inflammation and you should get rid of that food. You should eliminate it. All right. So number one, that's not inflammation. We have no evidence to suggest that. Okay. Just because you feel gassy doesn't mean that you are necessarily inflamed. It just means that you produce gas, right? What that is, instead of inflammation, that is sloppy digestion. Your body is struggling to process and unpack the food. All right. And point number two, you have been told to restrict, to eliminate, get rid of the beans, get rid of the whole grains, get rid of the onions and garlic. Like, and then next thing you know, literally all you're eating is boiled chicken and arugula. <laughs> right? And it's yeah. like, that's not a healthy diet. Yeah. And I literally just said that the number one predictor of a healthy gut is the diversity of plants in your diet. When you further restrict, you are actually making your gut less healthy in the process of doing that. And anyone who's done this, you've tried like one of these fad diets and you've done an elimination. Anyone who's done this, I mean, I see these people in my clinic every day and they tell me, doc, I was better for like two weeks and then it got even worse. So, the point is this, this is what people need to know. You are struggling to process your food. The reason that you are struggling to process your food is that the enzymes, I said this before, but I'm gonna bring it back. The enzymes that process fiber, that unpack our complex carbohydrates, we as humans don't have them. Yeah. We outsourced it to our microbiome. We have, okay, so they're called glycoside hydrolases. We have, you and I have the same number, 17. Everyone listening right now, you as a human, you have 17 glycoside hydrolases. That is a pathetic number. These microbes, individually, a single cellular organism may have hundreds. Wow. And so our total number of glycoside hydrolases in a healthy microbiome, we believe is about 60,000. Now, the problem is if you have a damaged gut, all right, because the person who has food sensitivities, that's not the person that's got a healthy gut. That's the person with a damaged gut. Yeah. All right. So the person with a damaged gut, they may be missing some of the enzymes that they need to process and unpack this food. Does that mean that they are incapable of getting those enzymes? Absolutely not. Your gut is adaptable. Your gut is forgiving, all right? It forgives you. It wants to work with you. It wants to do good by you, but you got to treat it right. And the way that you do this is go low and slow. It's a Beastie Boy song. Low and slow, that is the tempo, yeah. right? I wanted to actually write that in the book and they told me, they're like, you might get in trouble with the Beastie Boys. I was like, okay, fine. I don't want any beef with the Beastie Boys. <laughs> That's funny. All right, but I can say it on the podcast. Low and slow, that is the tempo. So, so what we see happen is that your gut is like a muscle. It can be trained. When we exercise, we go and we do the right amount, which is what our body is actually capable of doing. And we work. And when we work, we come back a couple days later and we're stronger than we were the other day. And that's the way it works with our gut. If you eliminate the food, that is like saying, hey, my knee hurts, so now I'm going to stop walking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And instead, rather than eliminating the food, if we keep it and we moderate it, and we reduce the amount that we consume and we go low and slow, we will find the amount that our body is actually capable of doing. And we start 
there. And then what you will find is just like in the gym, just like building muscle, building fitness. When you start at that point, you will grow, you will become stronger, you will become more capable of processing and digesting that food. And you will, rather than losing function, wow, yeah, you will restore function to your gut. That that changed my life because it, it, it changed the way that I viewed it, you know? I think the thing that we keep hitting back on is the biodiversity, making sure that you have as much diversity as possible. But then there would be an exception. Like what what's the difference between food allergies and, and food sensitivities? Okay, so sometimes people use food allergies and food sensitivities and food intolerances. They use these words interchangeably. Yeah. And we should not. Mm-hmm. So an allergy implies activation of the immune system. And when the immune system becomes activated, the problem with an allergy is that it could be the smallest amount of food and you will still activate the immune system. And when it becomes activated, it'll manifest in a number of ways, including you could have a breakout on your skin like hives, mm-hmm. you could have swelling of your lips, difficulty breathing. You know, they can be scary, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I'm thinking about the people with peanut allergies that some of them can't even get on an airplane with other people who are eating peanuts. Yeah. Right? That's a food allergy. Now that is very different than the person who eats a bowl of quinoa and then gets gas and bloated and a little bit of digestive distress. Mm -hmm. That is a food intolerance. They are struggling with that particular food. And a food intolerance is not activation of the immune system. A food intolerance is the microbiome, which is struggling to process and unpack the food because it doesn't have the proper enzymes to keep up with the amount that you just dropped in there. So we gotta separate those two things out. Now, when we talk about a food intolerance, I just gave you the formula. Low and slow, that is the tempo. Low and slow, that is the tempo. Y'all are going to go to iTunes and we're going to make this a number one bestseller now for the Beastie Boys. Let me pay them. But when we're talking about a food allergy, a food allergy is not to be messed with. And is it possible to actually fix a food allergy? Yeah, it actually is. You go lower and slower and you can actually fix a food allergy and it's possible, but it is not something that I would ever, ever allow someone to do outside of being guided by a specialty health professional who does this Mm -hmm. for a living because the risk is too high. This is not just digestive distress, gas, and bloating. This is stuff that can really be dangerous for people. And so the point is, if you want to fight against a food allergy, you need to work with an allergist who who is facile and knows what they're doing in terms of going lower and slower to reintroduce Mm -hmm. these foods. Perfect. Can you tell us more about probiotics, prebiotics, postbiotics, what the difference is between them? All right. We've all heard of probiotics, right? Probiotics are the living microorganisms. They could be bacteria or yeasts or both. And many times you will find them packaged into a capsule that you would take, you know, maybe once, maybe more than once a day, right? Those are the probiotics, they're the bacteria. Well, guess what? You got probiotics living inside of you, my friend. They're already there. Now we can pile on with outside foreign probiotics that are in a capsule. But the problem is I don't really know where the strengths and the weaknesses of your gut exist, mm-hmm. right? You have a unique microbiome. There's no one on the planet with a microbiome exactly like yours. And when I take this generic capsule of probiotics, I'm giving you the same exact same probiotic that I just gave to the other guy 15 minutes ago and your microbiome is different Mm -hmm. and i don't know if they're going to get along in a way that's going to help you that's the challenge with probiotics they can be a total waste of time and money and they're not high risk but they can be a waste and i want people to know the probiotic market is built more on 
I'm hype than actual science. I'm excited about the future, but we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. So on the flip side, prebiotics, prebiotics, we've actually been talking about, but let's define it with even more clarity. That's the food for your microbiome. If I give you a prebiotic, I'm not giving you a living microbe. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm actually feeding your living microbes and they will multiply, they will grow, they will become stronger and they will become more capable of doing their job, which is being the engine for human health. All right. So prebiotics, fiber is the number one prebiotic. When we were talking about HMOs, human milk oligosaccharides, those are prebiotics. You will find other stuff like there are prebiotics that are in coffee that are not fiber. They're actually polyphenols. You will find prebiotics in red wine. Resveratrol is a prebiotic. Okay. But the number one prebiotic is dietary fiber. That's what feeds your microbiome. That's what makes it stronger. So we could mess with probiotics and spend $40 a month and not know if it's going to work. Or we can have you consume more fiber. And in consuming more fiber, I don't know exactly how it's going to work. But what I do know is that I'm feeding the good guys. And so with your unique gut microbiome, I know I can enhance it. I know I can make it better mm -hmm. with prebiotics. And what's fascinating is that at the end of the day, y'all have heard of probiotics. You've probably started to hear about prebiotics because they're starting to get hyped up now. All right. But what really matters is not these things individually. What actually matters is what they produce, which are the postbiotics. And there's a formula. Probiotics plus prebiotics equals postbiotics. When you take the bacteria and you feed them fiber, they will produce the postbiotics, which are the short chain fatty acids. And the entire point, when you want health benefits, it's not the fiber directly giving you the health benefit. It's the fiber connecting with your microbes, producing short chain fatty acids. The postbiotics are what actually matter. So at the end of the day, prebiotics and probiotics are cool. But at the end of the day, what we really want is pro postbiotics. We want to feed those microbes so they can give us the short chain fatty acids. Mm. That's that's so beautiful. So tell us about F goals, because this is uh, one of the biggest parts of your book. Yeah. So, you know, people always want to know they're like, OK, so Dr. B, um, I'm going to be I'm going to eat some fiber. But like what food? What, what foods should I be eating? Yeah. And, you know, the reality is this. So we tend to as a culture, we gravitate towards superfoods. You know, oh, give me that acai bowl. Right. Yeah. 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 So we gravitate towards these superfoods. But I personally, I will take three average foods, you know, give me a carrot, a celery and a potato, right? I'll take those three average foods over the superfood every day of the week because dietary diversity is how we get things done in our microbiome. That's money. Okay. So that being said, so I want you to have, if these plants are our friends, which I consider them to be our friends because they want plants, plants want us to be healthy. Plants want us to live a long life. If plants are our friends, I want you to have as many friends as possible. But let's be straight. They're not all going to be your best friends. It's not possible. We need to ultimately pick who our best friends are. Mm -hmm. And for me, my best friends are the F goals. F goals is my acronym that I use to remember what are the foods that I'm trying to get in my diet. If not every day, at least a couple times a week. Mm -hmm. All right. So F goals. Let's run through this. F stands for fruit and fermented. All right, so fruit, fruit is actually good for us. People lose weight when they eat fruit. I know that's crazy. Yeah. I know that's crazy. People lose weight when they eat fruit. People reverse diabetes when they eat fruit. Yeah. Okay. Fermented, it's a lost art. 
It's a lost art. We, every culture in, Amer- in human history, every culture had fermented food as a part of their celebrated tradition. And because we developed canning and preservatives and all this stuff, we said, we don't need that anymore. It's time to get back to fermentation. And what I love about fermentation is that it is transformation. We are unlocking parts of our food, new types of fiber, new vitamins, new phytochemicals that we did not have access to prior to fermentation. So, and that's what I dig. And you don't need much. A little bit of fermented food every day goes a long way. Mm-hmm. All right. G, G stands for greens and whole grains. Greens are weight loss foods. They have so much nutrition and they have almost no calories, which is fascinating. Whole grains, whole grains are wonderful for the microbiome. They have fiber. They have complex polysaccharides, which are prebiotic. They have resistant starches, which are prebiotic. Whole grains are designed to feed our microbiome and they are incredibly healthy. O stands for omega-3 super seeds. I'm talking about chia, flax, and hemp. I put all three into my smoothie. I do too. That's why when I read that, I was like, yes. Yeah, man. (laughs) There you go. See? All right. A stands for aromatics. Aromatics are the flavor foods, onions, garlic, shallots. All right. Great against heart disease, great against cancer. Again, heart disease and cancer are top two killers. We want foods that are good against those things. Oh, yeah. L stands for legumes. Talking about lentils, talking about beans. All right. Legumes, very similar to whole grains. Great for the microbiome. If you ask me, you only get one. Because I'm a gut health guy, if I only get one, I'm taking legumes. Wow, okay. Yes. And they're dirt cheap. Oh, yeah. They're dirt cheap. So why are we messing around with all this other stuff when it's like you could just be eating more beans? All right, so good for us. I mean, to me, a five-bean chili this time of year is a dream come true. All right. And then S... I got to the end of my list, F goals, and I got to S, and I was like, dang, man, I got a lot, I got a lot I want to say here. Yeah. So I got three. I got three. Shrooms, shrooms for mushrooms. Shrooms are, uh, they're not technically plants, but they are great. They are great for our health. They have unique properties for our immune system. They have unique properties for our microbiome. S also stands for seaweed or sea vegetables. Uh, they have seaweed is interesting because it has like I'm not saying that you would eat seaweed literally every day, but seaweed has unique nutrients that are very difficult to find in other places. And so you just incorporate a little bit of seaweed, whether it be like snacking on some sheets of nori, you know, or it be like putting a little bit of wakame in your soup, uh, in your miso bowl. You know, those are great options. Mm-hmm. And then the last, the last letter, probably the best, is sulforaphane, which is my nerdy way of saying cruciferous vegetables. All right, so sulforaphane is the phytochemical that you will find in broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts. And it is an absolute cancer crusher. It is a cancer destroyer, all right? I can't find something more powerful in the fight against cancer than this. And if you're looking where, where, where can I get more sulforaphane, Doc, you could eat pounds and pounds of broccoli, or you could eat a little handful of broccoli sprouts because broccoli sprouts have literally a hundred times more sulforaphane than you will find in adult mature broccoli. 
So. My wife and I, we're going to look into the broccoli sprouts. <laughs> it's not hard to do. You can do it at home. Uh, I actually put the formula, the recipe into my book. Um, but you can also, many places, many, re- many, many stores are now starting to carry them. And so you can go and pick them up locally too. Wow. Well, Dr. B, man, I can't, I can't thank you enough for all this information. Um, so what are you working on nowadays? And um, how can our family find you and follow you and, and see what you're up to? Um, so, you know, the book came out in May. Mm-hmm. I am, you know, I'm obviously excited about the book, but the book is done. Uh, you know, I'm not updating the book anymore. And so, so what I've done is I've moved on to creating other offerings for people that want to go beyond the book. Mm-hmm. So I created an online course. I launched this course in September. It's a seven week course, a deep dive into the gut. Mm-hmm. Are people who want to get serious about learning about the microbiome. And, um, so I launched it in September and like, it's been amazing because people, the feedback, I mean, people who are suffering with longstanding issues who have found healing because of this course, you know, that's the entire reason that I do this stuff is like to try to create ways for people to connect with me, Mm -hmm. you know, beyond just reading what's in the book, like find other ways to connect. This podcast is one of the ways. So I created this course and just have had amazing results. So I'm like super thrilled about that. Um, You can come to my website. It's theplantfedgut.com. So T-H-E plantfedgut.com, theplantfedgut.com. Come there. um, You'll find more info about the course, uh, the info about the book. I have an email list where basically when there's a new gut health study that comes out. Oh, I want to like, you know, get you the cutting edge about, hey, man, this new study came out this week. You guys didn't know about this. So if you join my email list, that's what you'll be getting. And uh, on social media, both Instagram and Facebook as the Gut Health MD. Yes, sir. I follow you on Instagram. That's actually how I found you. When did you uh, start your Instagram? I started it 2016. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm one of these guys that like, so first of all, I had zero expectations. And it was super slow in the beginning. You know, I mean, it took me two years to get to 25,000. Yeah. And then it's just kind of, but it's just exploded in the last two years. So, you know, it's been really fun. No, we, we live in such a blessed time where we can connect with people in so many creative ways nowadays. So again, uh, Dr. B, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been highly educational. I look forward to getting some feedback on this podcast from our audience. Uh, now, thank you, man. So good to connect with you. I look forward, you know, look forward to connecting with you on an ongoing basis in the future, my friend. Absolutely. There you have it, folks. I hope you guys left this one feeling med-fired. If you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to be the best possible version of ourselves, no matter what life throws at us, mentally, physically, and spiritually. As always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and to do something med-spiring.